Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Last week at the State Board of Education meeting, State Superintendent of Public Instruction Ryan Walters endorsed an advisory committee's recommendations from a group called the Oklahoma Advisory Committee on Founding Principles, made up principally of faith leaders in the state, which called for enforcing current state law regarding a daily moment of silence, require every classroom to display a copy of the Ten Commandments, and require students to take a Western civilization course that strengthens, quote, the heritage which was integral to the nation's founding and its Western culture, unquote. This immediately raised concerns about exclusion of other viewpoints and culture's role in the nation's founding, as well as constitutional concerns over the separation of church and state. I'm joined today by two Tulsa faith leaders who are concerned about the superintendent's endorsement of a particular set of religious values in public school classrooms. Reverend Chris Moore is a senior pastor at Fellowship Congregational Church, and Rabbi Dan Kamen is a principal rabbi at Congregation B'nai Amuna. They join me today to discuss these recommendations in Oklahoma classrooms. Rabbi Kamen and Reverend Moore, thanks very much for joining us here on Studio Tulsa. Great to be here. Glad to be with you. I'm sure you've been following the rhetoric and actions of the state superintendent because so much of his actions in this superintendent's office has had some sort of religious element in how he's uh, relating to public schools. But as spiritual leaders, what was your reaction to Walter's seeming endorsement of this advocacy group, Oklahoma Advisory Committee on Founding Principles, recommendations to display the Ten Commandments and and enforce the minimum of silence and really sort of reflect their version of Judeo-Christian ethics, if you will. Mm. Chris, I'll start with you, Reverend Moore. Well, you know, <laughs> the devil's in the details, as they say. Um, so, you know, what you what do you mean when you say Judeo-Christian values? The the phrase itself has some problems, of course. I'm not sure what lies behind an enforced minute of silence. Uh, some of the subtexts that I read uh, indicated that they thought people were doing a, some silence, but it wasn't quite a minute. So I don't know what's magical about a minute, um, but that seems to be a foreshadowing or a step towards what is, you know, a not very uh, veiled effort to sort of return to prayer in schools, that that kind of... Um, atmosphere. Obviously, the the separation of church and state bells um, ring very loudly when things like this are suggested. And, um, you know, the posting of the Ten Commandments has been an effort that has, you know, come in many forms, whether we are going to build a monument to that outside the state capitol or whether we're going to now put them in classrooms. I find it ironic that the first of the Ten Commandments is you shall make no graven image. And here we are, you know, um, really lifting those up. And there's a problem, of course, with the Ten Commandments, as I'm sure this is a softball lead-in to (laughs) Rabbi Kamen. (laughs) Well, Rabbi Kamen, first of all, your reaction to this idea, these ideas? Yeah, it's it's a it's a good question and 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 I heard these ideas both through the lens of of, of course my my role as a religious leader but also through the, my lens as a parent I I have a student who's going to be starting uh, my my first child who's starting in TPS this this coming fall um, and so I'm I, I'm thinking about 
the education my my child and of course the children of our congregation will will be receiving um, in in our public school programs, and and I'd echo uh, Reverend Moore's uh, notion that uh, what we my own reaction is a concern about the separation of church and state, and creating a place of inclusivity in our schools where the variety of religious backgrounds and um, orientations are honored and respected. It's, it's unclear from the suggestions exactly what this will mean in practical terms. So I, I, I want to leave open the possibility that there is some version of this, uh, or I want to believe that there's some version of this that comes from our, an earnest hope for inclusivity for all. Um, and, uh, and, and again, uh, like Reverend uh, Moore uh, alluded to, uh, when I think about things like the Ten Commandments being posted in a classroom, uh, I, I, I wonder which ten. And, and then, of course, of the, the 17 verses that are represented in, uh, in, in, in the Hebrew Bible are variously translated and, and variously segmented in text as to which, uh, which way we're going to read that text and understand those texts. And, and of course, they, they, they're all common values, but those values, uh, more common values to those who, who kind of uh, navigate their lives with, uh, with the Hebrew Bible as a, as a meaningful text. But I want to make sure that the schools that my kids are going to and the schools that are, that are educating the children of our community are inclusive spaces. If you're, I mean, if the if the issue is that we're worried about uh, values that our kids are having and being taught, I mean, it, it kind of pushes back against the notion from uh, that I've heard also from this particular superintendent that we need to just be worried about teaching math and science. But now all of a sudden we are teaching values. Uh, it's just that he wants his values, and when we get into that kind of an issue, it gets to be very complicated. Um, very quickly. You have a very diverse set of people coming in, particularly into public schools, who don't get to pick and choose what students that they want to, to have coming through their doors. And, you know, the, the trick of being faithful people in a pluralistic world is that you have to work at that and you have to open yourself to those complexities. Complex issues, as someone once said, always have simple answers that are wrong. So assuming that we just put up a set of 10 rules, uh, the the 10 commandments that I know they're referring to don't even show up as rabbi animated in the same way in different places within the Bible, mm. right? Not to mention our translation issues. Uh, the, uh, obviously, the most glaring one you think of is the sixth commandment, or what is you typically thought of as the sixth commandment. Is that kill or murder? Well, depends on how you translate that word, right? Mm -hmm. So which version are we putting up? I mean, it just gets complicated very, very quickly. And I understand that, um, you know, this is my assumption based on the makeup of the people from the committee that I see that they would not recognize such complexities. The, the answer is their version. Yeah. The first recommendation that enforcing the minute of silence 
you know, on, on the surface of it, given Supreme Court decisions, that passes uh, mm-hmm. constitutional muster. But if you think about that, isn't that a little bit exclusionary because certain religious practices, you can't do this in a minute. You can't do it right. silently at your desk. Right. It's a ritual. You know, you're, you're looking at maybe ritualized prayer traditions in many uh, forms of religion. Right. Isn't that exclusionary on the face of it, Rabbi Kamen? Yeah, I think there is something exclusionary about framing prayer in a particular way. Um, and we live in a complex society as religious people where our calendar system, our, our, school, our school calendar always has the December 24th and 25th as days that are vacation days. Uh, but the first of Tishrei, that's the Hebrew date for the beginning of the Jewish New Year, those are regular school days that take place, well, often they are regular school days that take place in our school calendar. And there's just a, a difference of experience and worship style and worship framework that comes from a, a variety of, of religious traditions. And so that minute of silence um, does project a particular viewpoint and not necessarily a universal approach to prayer. As an addendum, having worked with kids uh, in my life, getting them quiet for a minute is going to be an accomplishment <laughs> that I, I know our educators can take on, but will be a task. It may require prayer in and of itself. <laughs> right. yeah. I do think, Rich, that it's it, like uh, Rabbi is kind of pointing this out that, you know, there's there's this um, unspoken of lens that we look at things through. And so the the assumptions that are made, what is the default position? What's the religious and cultural assumption being made as to what is normative? And it's often not spoken out loud. It's not even thought of because this is just the way. And it may be that's asserted that that's the majority. But, you know, I'm here as a Christian pastor to say that the so-called Christian opinion being presented by this committee is not my opinion. And it's not many of my other colleagues. Christianity is not monolithic. There's Christianities, and there's lots of versions of this. And so to to say that there's just a Christian answer to something is is wrong. I want to focus on something that uh, Rabbi Kamen and both uh, you, Reverend Moore, also alluded to, this idea of the Ten Commandments of being, well, there are 17 verses, there are 10 commandments, which 10 are you going to use? I think that might come as a surprise to a lot of even people who read the Bible in its entirety. Uh, what were you alluding to, Rabbi Kamen? Oh, oh, for sure. In the various ways in which the Bible has been both translated and then understood throughout history, the Lutherans versus the Roman Catholics versus the, the Talmud itself, there are some internal debates about how you construct the phrases which are the commandments. So the the basic difference to make a complicated thing uh, simpler is to look at the uh, verses two through six of Exodus, or really the, the, the first verse that comes in, in chapter 20 of Exodus, where 
the statements are, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. The English I just used there was from the King James right. Version. In the King James Version, in many submissions of the Ten Commandments, those two or three are included as one commandment. In the Talmud, the first commandment is, I am the Lord thy God, full stop, and then thou shall have no other gods before me, and thou shall not make unto thee any graven images, is the second commandment. And now you might say, okay, if there's some difference at the beginning, how does that work out at the end? So then you have to focus on the last few verses, although there are some other complications in this, uh, of course, where you look at the the last set of statements in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, or his slaves, or his animals, or anything of thy neighbor. Typical construction of those uh, in uh, in the Lutheran division of, uh, of of the Ten Commandments would to separate out nine and ten the coveting of thy neighbor's house and coveting of the neighbor's wife from the uh, act of slaves, animals, or anything of thy neighbor. And in the Talmud, all of those appear as one commandment. So you've got some differences in terms of even what number you assign to which commandment. There's actually a great um, chart about this on Wikipedia of all places. <laughs> if you go into the Ten Commandments article, you'll you'll, you'll find this laid out in in beautiful color. Let me uh, re-identify my guest today. Rabbi Dan Kamen is the principal rabbi at Congregation B'nai Amuna. Reverend Chris Moore is a senior pastor at a Fellowship Congregational Church. They are part of a small group of religious leaders that are talking about uh, State Superintendent Ryan Walters' endorsement of a more quote, Judeo-Christian values, unquote, in public schools, and especially uh, looking at this recent endorsement of an advisory group, the Oklahoma Advisory Committee on Founding Principles, uh, recommendations for uh, a Western Civ class that, you know, the, the wordage suggests it's a very narrow uh, Northern European discussion of nation's founding and the Western culture that informed it. Uh, the, a copy of the Ten Commandments to go into all classrooms and to enforce the minute of silence. Of course, that's in addition to okaying a religiously uh, affiliated charter school, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which we might talk about in a moment. But, but before we go on, the Ten Commandments has become, I'm, I'm, I may be committing blasphemy in, in front of both of you, but, but it's almost been like a fetish uh, in many ways this idea of this particular text as opposed to any other law-giving text within a whole range of, of Western and non-Western traditions. And I'm wondering why this particular one, especially since most of the people that are behind this are Christians, why aren't they talking about the Beatitudes? <laughs> I'll throw that to you, Reverend Moore. Well, the Beatitudes would be, you're never going to see those posted in front of a state capitol building. I mean, they're going to be a lot more problematic. You know, blessed are the poor. And we're going to put that up in front of our state capitol building. Uh, blessed are the meek. So, you know, that's part of the reason. I mean, the t so the Ten Commandments um, are very rule-based, you know, sort of sense of 
do this, don't do this, and um, in a very wooden look at them and also pulling them out of context, which is, you know, often done. And depending on which context you pull and which version, as we've discussed, um, there's a propensity in some expressions of uh, Christianity in particular, but but really in all forms of religion, a, a fundamentalist approach to religion that wants a rule book and and really operates from that from that rule book, not in my experience, as a way for it to examine itself and its own behavior, but as a tool to use against other people and some sort of lifting up of the expression of this is what our values are when you have prohibitions against lying and stealing in that. And are we going to have a discussion about that given the latest news coming out of the state about misappropriation of federal funds uh, to the tune of $30 million, you know, or so. Are we going to talk about what happens in any kind of, uh, on both sides, any kind of election um, in terms of half-truths and lies that are that are promoted out there? I mean, there's a, there's just this real sense of um, physician heal thyself that is, is not approached when I hear discussions about, you know, usually using the Ten Commandments um, as a measuring rod. Yeah. And Rabbi Kamen, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? The idea that this is sort of, this is sort of universally put up as the code of conduct among all other codes of conduct. Yeah, I think it's interesting that there's such a focus on on the Decalogue in this way, that these commandments and, and the symbol, I mean, part of it feels uh, certainly uh, related to the to the artistic images that we've seen uh, throughout history, the religious artistic images that these that these statements represent, um, or the even the image of the of the tablets represent. Um, but one of the things that that strikes me about this conversation, and it, and it's worth noting that the Ten Commandments do appear on the building of the United States Supreme Court. That's true. Um, in terms of their representation, there's an image on uh, the North and South Frises of that building of Moses holding the Ten Commandments, and also, of course, the those images are alongside. Other religious figures, Solomon, Confucius, and Muhammad holding the Quran. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a way in which the religious images that come from uh, the variety of faith traditions which are represented in this country are very important and, and, and very powerful. And, and I would hope that uh, as we work to create, continue to create an inclusive community, um, that we can mirror that inclusivity in what we teach our kids um, and in the environments that that, that that we create that we create for them um, and, and, and so in that way the the hyper focus on ten commandments over everything else certainly uh, I think confuses the matter of the the inclusive societies we might want to or, or we might imagine um, ourselves creating I after all, the founding of the United States is, is a complicated uh, history, but we do know religious freedom is uh, is is a core value that um, that this country 
um, and the founders of this country um, wanted to make sure were in play. Well, it's interesting, uh, you know, the Supreme Court historically has said that if the state is going to be involved or allow religious thought and talk, then it has to be a public square in which everybody's religion, it, it can't be exclusionary. And what this seems to be on the face of it is seems to be exclusionary to every other faith culture uh, or lack of faith culture uh, that, uh, that exists. Yeah, I think you you simply have to look at the makeup of the group that is making this suggestion, and these are the three pieces that the superintendent has just picked up and gone with, and the, the makeup of that group, as far as I can tell, is uh, not nearly as diverse as they would like to claim to be. There's, there's no one uh, from a, a Jewish perspective lending any uh, information to that. And the one member that they had who is Muslim has Resigned. gone out of his way to disavow all of that. Right, right, right. In, indeed. My guest today are Reverend Chris Moore, Senior Pastor at Fellowship Congregational Church, and Rabbi Dan Kamen, Principal Rabbi at Congregation B'nai Amun, as we talk about uh, the State Superintendent Ryan Walter's endorsement of these advisory principles that endorse more, quote, Judeo-Christian values in public schools. Let's talk about the separation between church and state, because on the face of this, you know, the second recommendation seems to fly in the face of it. That can't be taken for granted now with a Supreme Court that seems to uh, have an absolutist view of religious rights and particular religious, religious organizations' rights. So, where do you, I mean, as, as, as a religious leader, how important is the separation of church and state to you in your faith traditions and how you talk to your congregants? So there's a reason, um, you know, in my understanding, there is a reason that the founders wanted the separation of church and state, and it was a rooted in their own history. These were people who had come from places where they saw what happened when there was a state-endorsed religion, and it, it didn't go well. And that was their primary driver for wanting to not establish that uh, in, in this brand new country. And just as central to our founding principles as the idea of individual freedom and life, liberty, pursuit of happiness and all of those things uh, was this notion that you were free to worship how you wanted to or not worship at all. And how you did that was up to you. And that last point has been hotly debated in yeah. the last 50 years. Right. Yeah. In fact, you know, one of the assertions made, um, you know, by even by Supreme Court justices, you've heard it in several different um, expressions, is something along the lines of, you know, freedom of religion, but not freedom from religion, um, which <laughs> seems very problematic to me. Uh, because the whole point of freedom of religion is freedom from religion. You are free to have your religious expressions uh, to whatever degree you want to. The line becomes when you say, I have to live by those rules. Yeah. Rabbi Kamen? Yeah, the issue of separation of church and state is, is, is continues to be something that we, we have to be really vigilant about and, and protect because of personal histories as a, as a, as a Jewish community and the challenges that, uh, our, our, our families and our, and our 
and our community has faced when uh, when when religious values are imposed in a particular way that um, uh, that exclude and uh, and oppress um, others. Uh, one of the things that I'm reminded of in, in this conversation is is the robust world of interfaith work that we have in Oklahoma and in Tulsa in particular. And, and one of the areas that's become really important to the synagogue over the past couple of years of, of activism and action work and direct service is, is our work in refugee resettlement. We do that as equal partners with Catholic Charities here in Tulsa. We are both refugee resettlement agencies. We work shoulder to shoulder. And the YWCA, um, which also works in this area. Last week at the synagogue, all the staff, all the professional staff of the folks who uh, who work with refugees as they come to the Tulsa area came together for a day-long seminar and they're building out the relationships and making a kind of cohesive system of folks that work to get work together. Um, and the people who we resettle here in Oklahoma are individuals who um, often are fleeing religious oppression in other places. And they are coming to the United States to experience religious freedom. And uh, while uh, I, I'm thinking of many of the Burmese who come to the Tulsa area, who themselves are religiously oppressed Christians in their home countries, they come here and can express uh, and feel a level of freedom uh, because of this separation of church and state. Um, and I would want to defend that separation of church and state such that their oppression in another place can continue to be a freedom for them here. Um, and that's actually one of the reasons that the synagogue does its work in refugee resettlement. And it's actually one of the reasons religious communities, I think, need to be very concerned when we hear the challenges and some of the gray areas um, to these uh, these separations that uh, that we've upheld, um, uh, uh, that the founders of our of our country um, upheld for us, and 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 we're tasked to continue. Mm, that would be good advice for the uh, state superintendent and the state board to hear these days. I yeah. think. Now, because when you talk about Judeo-Christian values, that's a term that gets thrown out there. And of course, again, what are the details of that? Like, what what do you mean by that? I can go into the Bible and support lots of um, Judeo-Christian values, things that I would lift up um, as important to both Rabbi Kamen and myself. And the refugee situation is a prime example of Welcome the stranger is an absolute commandment in multiple places throughout our text. There's no avoiding that as, as a scriptural mandate upon faithful people. And where does that stop? It's not just welcome the stranger from a foreign land, but it's also welcome the stranger among you. So what? how does that inform us for how we might make policy about trans children, for instance, in our schools? Yeah. Well, Reverend Moore, Rabbi Kamen, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Reverend Chris Moore is the senior pastor at Fellowship Congregational Church, and Rabbi Dan Kamen, the principal rabbi at Congregation B'nai Amuna, as we talk about their reaction to State Superintendent Ryan Walter's endorsement of more Judeo-Christian values in public schools. Well, today is the final installment of Studio Tulsa, 
For just a month shy of 31 years, it's been my humble honor and privilege to share conversations with community leaders, thought leaders, artists, writers, journalists, and scientists about moments, issues, and ideas that concern us all. I know that we all share an innate curiosity about how our larger world works and hope that on our best days, we've been able to share this together. Thank you for listening over the years, for your notes and messages of encouragement, constructive criticism, straight out criticism. I've always taken it to heart and have tried to improve on it. I'd also like to thank everyone who's helped make this show a reality, from Bill Knoll and Frank Crystal, who first suggested it and green-lighted it back in 1992, my current producer, Scott Gregory, who's always challenged me to be at my best, to former producers Brian Byrne, Jonathan Scott Chin, Casey Morgan, and assistants Dan, Brian, and Tom Neely, and of course, my Monday host, John Schumann, who's helped sustain me the past few years. Of course, I have to thank the entire public radio Tulsa staff and commentators, both past and present, that have helped make this show happen. Most importantly, of course, thank you for giving of your time to share with all of us. So, one last time, this is Studio Tulsa for today. Our program is produced and edited by Scott Gregory, and I'm Rich Fisher. Thank you so much for listening.